0: You are listening to Club Podcast, produced in support with American University in Bulgaria. With this podcast, you can learn more about the science of psychology and how it applies to your daily life. Hello, this is your podcast host, Diana, and today, as I promised, we have an exciting guest. It is Cody Commerce. He is a PhD student in social psychology at the University of Oxford. I invited Cody to talk about his essay that he wrote for psychology today about love languages. So continue listening to learn more about what love languages are, who came up with the idea of them, how they manifest themselves, and also Cody's own take on them.
1: So the basic idea of love languages is that... So there's this guy, his name is Gary Chapman. And he wrote this book, I don't know how long it was ago, but um, it's called The Five Love Languages. And it turned out to be just insanely popular. Like this book just sells gazillions of copies every year still. Uh, And the basic idea of it is that the way that we feel love happens in one of five different ways, which he calls the love language. And if I can remember these, they're uh, touch, acts of service, gifts, quality time, and words of affirmation. And the basic idea that he gets across in this book is that your partner is going to have a primary love language and is going to feel most loved when you express that love in terms of one of these love languages. So my personal love language would be quality time. I love it you know, that's the most meaningful thing to me. I'm not really big on gifts. Uh, you know, so uh, if you fail to give me a gift to, so, you know, oh, you know, like, whatever, if you give me a gift, it's like, great, that's really nice. But it's not the thing that's most meaningful to me. And so that's the basic idea. One thing that's worth noting about this is that I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure, in fact, that this is not really founded in actual psychological research, as in, um, you know, you would go and you know, read about it in a nature, human behavior paper or something like that. So I'm not sure that it's officially, you know, sort of academic psychology in that sense, but it is something that people have found very useful and is certainly a worthwhile, you might think of it as a model of dividing up how one expresses and feels love. So that's the basic idea of it. And when you see people talking about it, Oftentimes they'll say, well, you know, I express love most by giving gifts or by touching when I when I really care about someone and give them a hug. And Gary Chapman, the author of the book, will be like, well, no, 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 no. That's not your love language. Your love language is the one you feel uh, love with. So you, you don't think about it in terms of what you express with. Um, you think about what in terms of you or your partner or another person feels. And then in this little essay that I wrote for Psychology Today, I make a further distinction, which uh, I don't think is part of the way it's normally talked about in the book or, you know, internet quizzes or, or whatever, which is this observation that the things that can make you feel good, that is your love language, are also the things that can most hurt you right? So if you want to hurt my feelings, the most efficient way to do that is to schedule some time be like, Hey, Cody, we're going to go out to coffee this Thursday afternoon. And then, you know, at 155, you know, right before we're supposed to go you can text me, be like, Oh, sorry, I, you know, I'm going to have to bail. And, you know, most of the times I am forgiving about it. But like when we actually set aside time to hang out, and someone doesn't come through on that, that genuinely hurts my feelings. And so not only do I feel love, my primary love language, through quality time, but that's also the thing that has the potential to hurt me the most. And so it's just this sensitivity um, that goes both directions to the love uh, languages. That's basically that entire essay in verbal form. So there you are.
0: Yeah, I think it is really important that you also talk about how your love language can hurt you, but also like make you feel good. You said that your love language is quality time, but what is your partner's? Do you have different ones?
1: Yeah, so that's... uh... It's funny because I think what it actually is. So my highest is quality time. And then if you rank them, probably my lowest is words of affirmation. I really don't have uh, like very little connection with people saying positive things about me to some extent. And my partner is kind of the opposite. She um, is big on words of affirmation. And so that's something I have to work really hard on uh, to try and you know, when you have the disconnect between how you naturally express uh, something and how, you know, the other person feels it, that, that's why I think, you know, the author Gary Chapman goes to lengths to say, look, don't worry about how you express it. That's fine. You're going to do a good job of that. Worry about how your partner feels about it and then um, figure out how to do that better. So I think that uh, I'm probably a work in progress on my words of affirmation, but at least I have a label by which to, um, you know, describe the, the goal and, and what I'm, what I need to do, work on. So.
0: Yeah, I was just about to ask if it is a problem for you, um, but how do you make it work then? Yeah, um,
1: let's see. So I guess it's worth saying that this is one dynamic among many in a relationship. And so for me, again, going back to what I said about the fact that it, this isn't necessarily like an academic psychology theory, but it is a helpful way of you know, diagnosing a problem of talking about a thing like that. So having a label to put on a feeling, a procedure, a, a a mode of being, however you want to describe it, is a very helpful thing to do. And that's something that we see from the psychology literature and that sort of stuff. So I'd say when this kind of thing is the main kind of problem uh, that, you know, feels like, oh, there's a miscommunication on this, it's very helpful. It is helpful in the sense that if if I feel like there's a disconnect on this level, I can say like mm, I know that I'm bad at words of affirmation. I need to I need to spend a little bit of time coming up with how I'm going to do that better, as opposed to saying mm, my partner feels undervalued. I need to come up with a way to make her feel more valued. Um, I think that having that finer level of um, of you know sort of nuance in describing what you want to do, what you need to do with the other person. Uh, would benefit from uh, is is helpful. And I think that that is a legitimately worthwhile thing.
0: How, for how long have you been with your partner? Um, is it?
1: Uh, I believe it's mm, three and a half years.
0: Okay. I tried to stalk you on Instagram to be better, better prepared for our conversation.
1: Maybe you have a better idea. It was October 2016. Is that four 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 and a half years now?
0: That is four and a half years. Yeah.
1: Wow. Yeah. Um,
0: <laughs> you look really cute together
1: <laughs> we just got a dog so we look even cuter now between the three of um,
0: I was gonna ask how far into relationship were you when you found out your partner's love language did you take a test together or
1: gosh so the love languages book is actually from a Christian background so it actually has a religious um you know, sort of, if you actually go and read the book, as opposed to like doing the internet qu- quizzes, it actually is fundamentally like a Christian sort of thing. And back in high school, in the beginning of college, I was religious. And so that's when I first came across because it's like, you know, one of these books that gets talked about in Christian circles. And so it's just been a, something in my repertoire for uh, a relatively long time. And I wouldn't say that it's something I necessarily uh, dwell on or that there was a moment where it's like, ah, you know, like, let's take, sit down and take the quiz and whatever. But it's one of those things that when you have that as a sort of tool, a diagnostic tool, you just sort of get a feel for it. And then, you know, it comes up at some point point. it's like, hmm, maybe this is a good way to think about, you know, whatever issue is coming up or, or how to, you know, make my partner Haley feel more, more appreciated, that sort of stuff. So.
0: Let's say one of our listeners has a crush on someone and they want to make that crush feel important and appreciated and loved without actually asking them about the love language because that would be sketchy probably. So how would you recommend being the most precise at guessing the love language of that crush?
1: Well, let's see. So one thing that I think is worth saying that's sort of the point that I was trying to make in that essay is that you don't just want to be sensitive to what makes people feel good, but you also want to be sensitive to things that make people feel uncomfortable. And I think in some ways this can be harder to do. And I know, like personally, in my own reflection, um, that I'm the kind of person who can make other people uncomfortable uh, just because I, you know, maybe naturally am just like a little bit more forthcoming or, you know, like naturally friendly right off the bat or whatever. And so sometimes I can overstep uh, my boundaries. So I, uh, not in like a, like a bad way, but just in like, you know, like a natural way that, that happens. I try to be really sensitive to when I am doing something that makes other people uncomfortable. This is, like I said, the point that I was trying to make in the love language piece is that you want to be sensitive to the ways in which people not only feel appreciated, but can feel you know, made to the opposite of that, right? So the central piece of advice there is figure out what the other person you know, gets uncomfortable by and don't do that. That's the easiest way to, to screw it up is to have too many negative interactions, uh, which you know, essentially take you out of the game, so to speak, as opposed to that. So I'm not sure that I can give a direct recommendation from that on how to achieve a certain level of success with your, with your crush and everything like that. But one thing that I subscribe to um, is this idea that essentially what creates good romantic tension or the feeling of attractiveness with some, someone else is essentially the same thing that creates good plot tension in a novel. Um, and so the basic idea is that like, when you read a book, it has a beginning uh, it has a middle, and then it has an end, where like you know the big thing happens, and the thing that pulls you through that is this you know sort of tension of unresolved plot points and feelings and things that are supposed to happen and that sort of stuff. And so I think one of the biggest mistakes that that people make in trying to develop romantic feelings with someone is to start off way too high, way too in their face, way too, you know, closer to what it'd be towards the end of the book, so to speak, where if you're up here, just being, you know, super open and everything like that, that's a very easy way to have that person like you, but not be attracted to you. And so the artfulness of it is to start off and always have that person feel like there's more of you to discover. And that's what makes us romantically attracted to another person is to feel that there's a little bit more that you uh, want to understand or to get to know or to be close to and that sort of stuff. And so figuring out a way um, to do that, I think, can be a really powerful thing uh, that people often underestimate.
0: Wow, that's that's really cool. I've never even heard what's the name for this novel like comparison
1: i created it myself so there's no official name for it i call it the narrative theory of romantic encounters
0: love that
1: <laughs> no it's it's something that i have thought about because you know like i was saying is like you know when you are a person who is naturally kind of open and friendly with other people it's really easy to do this thing that i was talking about where the other person likes you but it's not attracted to you and so i noticed that was like an issue and I was like, well, what, what's what's the like problem with that? And it's that thing that I was describing, where you have to almost start out artificially low. That's the interesting prediction of this theory, is that you don't just start off, you know, sort of medium, you start off like worse in a certain way than you normally would be with like a little bit more closed body language, maybe, you know, not say quite as much or you know, like depending on the circumstances, you do something like that and then uh, you have it build towards, you know, being more open and more forthcoming and more, you know, open body language and, and that sort of stuff. So,
0: that's really interesting. Thank you so much for sharing that.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure how helpful that'll be to other people, but I certainly felt like that was a useful way to think about things. Do you have a partner? Yes, I do. Uh, what do you do? You, have you figured out your love language and and their love language?
0: Yeah, he actually sent me a link to the test and then a screenshot of their results. Mine is words of affirmation because I'm extremely anxious and I really need that affirmation all the time. And uh, his is spending time together.
1: Your podcast is great. Your student work is great. Uh, you're going to be great at everything. I want to be very affirming. With, <laughs> with all of that.
0: Uh- Thank you so much. And I really appreciate that you took the time out of your day to spend this quality podcast time with me.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a very, very meaningful act on, on my behalf is to to share this quality time with you.
0: If you guys enjoyed listening to this episode of Cyclo Podcast and especially enjoyed Cody's voice and you just want to hear more of that, then I have some really nice news for you. He actually has his own podcast. I will let Cody tell you more about it.
1: So my podcast is called Cognitive Revolution. And the basic gist of it is that each week I interview an eminent scientist or writer or creative or person that I look up to and find interesting and try and understand about the personal experiences that led to their success as an academic or, or writer, or, you know, whatever it is. And so, you know, we start off from where they're from and their early experiences and what got them interested in their field. And we work all the way through their biggest ideas and their most recent books and all that sort of stuff. Um, I really enjoy it because I love talking to people about that sort of stuff. I love understanding the person behind the idea, right? To me, that's a very interesting part of uh, academia and, uh, you know, sort of intellectual life that goes unexplored is... Not only, you know, what is the idea and, and, you know, what is what is the sort of the core of it, but, but why does it exist? Who came up with it? Uh, what was their life experience uh, that, that shaped it? And especially when you're dealing with ideas in psychology and sociology and anthropology and, you know, of course, anyone who writes books about humans and, and the way they interact and behave and live. Uh, there's going to be an interesting personal story behind that. That's how I try to get on the uh, episode. And um, yeah, I hope people enjoy it.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of SciClub Podcast. Be sure to follow us on Spotify to never miss an episode. You can follow us on Instagram at AUBG Club for information on our latest projects and events. Don't be afraid to DM us with your own topic suggestions. Until next time.